0: What's up, family? You are tuned into Law & Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. In this show, I hold space as a producer and a host, and I'm guided by journalistic intent and practices, certainly not an artificial space of objectivity, which I don't believe exists but from a space of discovery. I see my role here as helping to curate an understanding of what's happening in the world around us as we make choices about how to participate in it. If my job is to curate information about the world around us and to compel us to participate in that world with intention, I do so with the work itself. I try not to tell you what to think, but to form interviews and content around the impact of the world on the most marginalized among us. When we talk about Israel's bombardment of Gaza, for example, I work to bring on guests who can speak to the experience of the people directly impacted by that military assault. That's Palestinians themselves for the most part. But I feel compelled to speak now from a different space. And here I'm using the access I have to these airwaves to share something that I imagine I hope will resonate with our listeners. I've been in a deep space of grief for the past weeks. Learning of the untimely deaths of so many people has impacted me, has hurt me, and in some moments in an entirely overwhelming way. From my conversations with friends and family, I've gathered that my grief experience right now is not unique, and I think it's extremely important to acknowledge that. I've experienced grief before. I'm not a grief expert, but... The combination of textbook genocidal actions and intentions by the state of Israel and the constant violation of basic human rights and the international laws of war being inflicted on the Palestinian people who've remained in their indigenous land has created, I believe, a collective experience of grief for those of us who are paying attention to Something unique in the modern context where we can actually see the impacts of war not just in the 24-hour news cycle, but also in the immediate social resources that we engage with on our phones and computers that are part of most of our daily lives. It's overwhelming. What does it mean to learn of many thousands of lives taken in just a few weeks? How do we hold that and move forward knowing that, at least in this country, our political actors who believe they represent us have been constantly building Israel's war machine for decades? Far beyond acceptance, this country has actively encouraged the warmongering of Israel against the Palestinian people. And when I say warmongering, I certainly do mean the ongoing genocidal acts in Gaza But I also mean the 15-year siege on Gaza, the 530-plus Israeli military checkpoints in the West Bank, the more than 5,000 Palestinians that have been held hostage in Israeli prison facilities prior to this latest, more visible round of warfare, and the broader 75 years of occupation. I want to place myself in context of this grief. I'm from Oakland. I'm ethnically Eastern European Jewish. My mom and her parents came to the U.S. as refugees just after the Jewish Holocaust, where we experienced collective racialized punishment that killed most of my family. The fact that my grandparents were able to survive in various kinds of hiding still amazes me, as I grew up with the stories of hopelessness that includes my grandfather taking his first wife and two daughters, ages 11 and 14, to hopeful safety only to learn that they were killed by fascists very soon thereafter. I grew up with a sense of grief knowing that for whatever reason, some politically opportunist or distorted, the world rallied against the fascist forces that tried to take out a whole people, my people. That grief was passed down in my family, and it was present in some Jewish spaces I found myself in, but I did not experience it outside of specifically Jewish spaces, meaning, sure, maybe a synagogue, but also my friend's house or my grandparents' house or my cousin's house. It was the difference between learning fundamentally about the Holocaust that it was wrong and the world agreed, which we all did, versus, say, learning at age 19 that my mom experienced the emotional weight of German fascist violence against our people in a visceral discomfort with me driving a German-made Volkswagen. And I've inherited, and I think justifiably, a distrust for the efficiency of development that still characterizes so many things we know about Germany I'm saying all this for context, and to be specific, I don't want to compare the ongoing genocide in Gaza to the Jewish Holocaust in Europe. I don't think that kind of comparison is useful. I do think, though, that trying to understand my own inherited collective grief, which I think just about all Jews experience regardless of a direct familial relationship to the Jewish Holocaust, could help us understand what it means to grieve collectively for the constantly increasing number of victims of the ongoing genocide. It's hard and it's lonely because there's no way we could possibly hold without loneliness the deaths of all generations of 45 Palestinian families or thousands and thousands of Palestinian people in Gaza who are being bombed relentlessly and, yes, grieving the deaths of the Palestinians who've been killed in the past few weeks and also the Israelis who were killed on October 7th and vitally the hundreds or thousands killed in each of the many years prior in colonized Palestine. Each day now, we learn of more details of destruction and death, and we have more and more to grieve. I've realized that what all of this points me to is a deep understanding that modern Zionism does not make any of us safer, very much including Jews. Zionism tells us that it needs to maintain a military occupation and impose itself onto every day-to-day aspect of life for Palestinians in the name of safety for Jewish people. To me, it leads to a very simple question with an even simpler answer. Has it worked? Have Israel's colonial policies made Jews safer? Have they made anyone else safer? It's with more clarity in this moment than any other I can remember that the answer is no. We talk often on this radio show about abolition, and we've referred frequently to an analysis that all violence is state violence. When I say that all violence is state violence, I mean that even the violence that we see enacted from one disempowered community member onto another comes from the lack of resources at the grassroots level to deal with things like poverty, mental health treatment, houselessness, healthy food access and quality education, all combined with the ever increasing resources for policing and imprisonment in this country. We have unending dollars for those institutions that I think we can basically all agree do not fix social problems that persist in the U.S. If prisons and police did in fact fix our problems as the most incarcerated developed nation on the planet, we would also be the safest. It is actually that simple. Just like militarization of our local communities with policing and imprisonment does not actually make us safer, neither does do military systems that are built out of an idea of safety? Who really believes that we can arrest our way to safety? Who really believes that we can bomb our way to peace? Can we agree that Jews are not actually safer in this world because Israel exists as a religious military state? I would say these past two weeks have shown us very clearly that it does not. So who does feel like they're made safer by the state of Israel? And why Does the U.S. fund Israel's war machine to the tune of $3.8 billion per year? Here's one, although just partial, answer. A 2017 survey by a group called LifeWay Research that reached more than 2,000 evangelical Christians showed that 76% agree that Christians should support the Jewish people's right to live in the sovereign state of Israel. There is somewhere in the area of 80 million, maybe more, Christian evangelicals in this country That means at least 60 million evangelical Christians in the U.S. support the state of Israel. Take that number compared to just 7 million Jews who live in the U.S. And among that 7 million, we have very different thoughts about what Israel has the right to. Israel's existence as a militarized religious state does not keep Jews safe. Does it keep evangelicals safe? Just before a hospital in Gaza was bombed, killing 500 Palestinians, getting care and taking shelter there, Israel's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, painfully articulated and quickly deleted an eye-opening tweet saying that the bombardment of Gaza was, quote, a struggle between the children of light and the children of darkness, between humanity and the law of the jungle. It's hard to imagine a more Christian and white supremacist justification for colonizing and destroying a people a dehumanized dark people who wage the law of the jungle against the humanistic light people. So safety for whom and from what? If this is a battle for evangelical Christian values, it clarifies that propping up the military religious state of Israel is justified not by sharing a historically shared land, but using that land to evangelize a value system on people who have made it clear don't want to be imposed on. So how do we challenge the militarization of Christianity and white supremacist values? More specifically, how could we work toward safety without military-enforced apartheid dividing a land between, in Netanyahu's words, the children of light and the children of darkness? How could we work toward the safety of all without waging someone's safety against another's? In terms of we've learned from grassroots movement against white supremacy in this country, the defunding of police and prisons and the use of those funds to address at the root, the things that we know lead to harm and violence, things like I mentioned earlier, like poverty, access to quality education and food, etc., I'd like to build from that analysis and apply it to Israel too. If Zionism doesn't actually make Jews or Palestinians or maybe anyone safer, then we should defund it and reuse those resources. Now, Most of us are probably all of our listeners right now have no immediate control of the militarization and funding of the state of Israel. We've seen calls to action for us to call our federal political representatives to ask for a ceasefire or the interruption of the U.S. blank check for Israel. Sure, we should make those calls. I certainly have. But this brings me back to where I started, to the collective experience of grief that we are experiencing as we learn of more very public killings and collective punishment each day. I mentioned that the grief feels lonely, and I think it feels lonely because there's not enough of a way we can process it while it's happening and have an impact on stopping it. I will call Congress, but when it comes down to it, I think that our political representatives have known what they're doing in regard to Israel for a very long time. And they won't be swayed against Zionism by receiving phone calls. In that regard, I do feel powerless. And especially for those of us who are white, we've been taught for our whole damn lives that our voices matter. That we can weaponize our feelings to have an impact on the things that give us bad feelings, right? In the most crass terms, we see that in the barbecue Beckys who call the cops because they held discomfort regardless, that their discomfort was guided by racism, and that they feel for good reason entitled to call the police to come and defend them from something that gave them a bad feeling. And the good reason I refer to here is that they're engaging the police for the exact reason that police exist, to protect white supremacy. I'll give a less crass example. Right now, I, white man with some amount of power over these airwaves, have decided that my own feelings are important enough to interrupt usual programming because of how heavily I've been impacted by grief, and how I've decided, as producer of this show, that I'd curate my own voice, because I'm assuming that you, our listeners, could relate to it. I want to take a breath and marinate with the knowledge that we're being impacted right now by the war in Palestine. And that we're sharing a moment of grief. If you've made it this far with me, if you haven't turned off your radio yet, I want to offer you an invitation, a call. Who have you turned to for emotional comfort for other life challenges? Can you turn to them now? It's worth sharing grief for the loss of a people with our loving and also our politically frustrating relatives because maybe just maybe they can hold us in that grief and see the humanity of the Palestinian people through it. I'll say that again. Just maybe our loved ones can hold us in that grief and see the humanity of the Palestinian people through it. If there were ever a time to convince those who care for you that the long term and ongoing violence inflicted on Palestinian people by the state of Israel is wrong and does not make Jews or any of us safer, it might be right now. Seriously. Call your cousin and your uncle and your mom and your college friend and your weed dealer. And if you grew up with folks who are part of networks of Christian evangelicals in this country, call them and tell them you're hurting and tell them you're tired and tell them you can't continue to bear witness to more press conferences of doctors surrounded by piles of dead bodies. And you are terrified to see images of scrawny, malnourished survivors who somehow found enough fresh water to survive in hiding while their family was slaughtered. Tell them that you need your grief to be held by the people who say they care for you. And I'll say a third time, just maybe they can hold us in that grief and see the humanity of the Palestinian people through it. We are not alone. May we bear witness together. Good morning. Free Palestine.
1: If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at lawanddis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.